You are listening to Wait a Minute with Beth and Jessica, episode 53. I'm Jessica Pearson, certified life coach. And I'm Beth Barnett Babel, integrative nutrition therapist. Foundations is our 21 day online interactive course where you can learn how to eat normal. We teach you how to identify and apply small habits that make big impact on your well being. The best part is that you get personalized attention, it's customized. We meet you wherever you are at in your journey. You can easily do this at home, anytime, anywhere. So, what are you waiting for? Start now at pathnutrition.com backslash foundations. Okay, well, I want to welcome our guest today ahead of our segment because I know she has some meaningful contributions to this conversation. Today, we have Dr. Trina Dora, MD. She's a physician and binge eating coach, and she's an eating disorder survivor and host of Diet Culture is BS podcast. So, what a great name for a podcast! Hi, Trina. Thanks for coming. Oh, thank you for having me. I was going through all of your different episodes and I thought, oh, these are so good. So, Oh, yeah. I saw some of them. I was like, oh, I want to listen to that one later. <laughs> and, that one later. Yeah. And, I, and it looked like you had changed the name of it. Was it something different before? Yeah, at the beginning, I had something about emotional eating. I can't remember the exact name, but mm-hmm. then I decided I wanted to talk about more than just emotional eating. And yeah. then I switched it to diet culture and um, I need to get back on it. I have a family member who's been in the hospital the last couple of weeks. And so I've kind of taken a break, but they're getting discharged. So I'll get back to it. Oh, good. To their speedy yeah. recovery. And the <laughs> yeah. podcast will always be there whenever <laughs> life returns to normal for you. No need to rush. That is true. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Whoever's listening, please go listen to Diet Culture's BS podcast with Trina. And I cannot wait to dig into our conversation today. We're talking about wellness culture and racism. And this is a very important combo. So stay tuned. But first, we're going to just start off with something a little bit lighter. So we keep our eyes peeled for things in the media or in real life that come from diet culture or that perpetuate diet culture in some way. And they are often the subtle ways that creep in, which is why we are shining a light on it and sharing it with you. And Jessica, you have something for us today. Yeah. So was that last week that I posted about diet think, food or maybe yeah. the week before? I think so it was I, last week. I don't know. It's all running together, <laughs> to be honest with you. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So I had shared a product. They were cookies by the – I don't know if it's Hue or Who or human or yeah I don't know how you pronounce the brand name and they're actually out of Austin as well and they are cookies that you know they have whole food ingredients they're grain free I'd kind of alluded to them as being a diet food and I was like why are they diet food like what makes these yeah yeah I didn't understand I didn't understand your stance (laughs) yeah and I was like oh I gotta send Beth and Marco Polo we started this conversation about well what even is diet food like what does that mean to you I didn't realize that it was up for discussion (laughs) (laughs) so I had asked people I said you know hey like what do you guys think diet food is and I got a few different answers and so Trina I would love to hear what you think diet food is before I even dive into what my thoughts were so if I were to tell if I were to ask you what do you think diet food is how would you define that right so as you mentioned in the intro I am an eating disorder survivor and so a lot of 
the way I kind of think about food now is based on things that I learned as I was going through my recovery. And so one of the big mantras that we use in recovery is no food is bad food. Mm-hmm. And so we always talk about that. No food is bad food. All foods fit. And then I know one of the things that my dietitian often would talk about is there are certain foods that diet culture has tried to claim for themselves, like salad, for example. You know, diet culture doesn't get to claim any food. And so what they were trying to teach us was it's okay to have a salad. It's okay to want to have a salad, but it really is more about the mindset or your intention behind it. So if you're eating that food because you're purposely trying to restrict calories, lose weight, change your body, then I guess it kind of becomes a diet food. But if you're eating the salad just because you're like, this is what I actually want in this moment, I am craving this, I like how my body feels, you know, when I eat it or something like that. But it's not the mentality of I'm trying to change who I am and lose weight and fit into this narrative that society has given us about what my body should look like, then it's not diet food. So that's how I would answer the question. I like yeah, that. I think that's great because anybody can turn anything into diet food. I think about that concept with the books, eat this, not that. They are turning very seemingly benign foods in, on all the spectrum and turning them into diet thinking because it's like, well, eat this because it has less calories than that. And it sometimes is like a cheeseburger versus something that would be quote unquote healthier. And I, I'm like, that is like not healthy in any way because it's very reductionist thinking about it. And cause they do it just based on a calorie concept. And so they can turn something like that into diet food as well. When it's like, no, that's just food y'all. So Yeah. I actually, I have clients that have been averse to eating salads. Like they're like, I do want to eat a vegetable, but every time I go for one, I go into diet mentality because so much of what I learned about salads or vegetables was all just for the sole purpose of being thinner or reducing calories. And so they start to feel confused by what is this conflicting desire for wanting to eat vegetables versus wanting to lose weight and kind of unwrapping that, unwinding it. I talk about how sometimes our actions are the same, whether it was diet culture or just regular life. It's like eating a salad is the action, but it's how we think about it that matters the most. And how do you go into it? What are you feeling when you're enjoying these types of foods? Because to me, some of them are obvious, right? Like I think I shared with Beth, was it the Yoplait commercial from the oh, 90s? Yeah. That was the itsy bitsy teeny weeny yellow polka dot bikini. And it was all about Yoplait light. You know, so I think of foods that's are very obvious or they say light or diet, like Diet Coke or... Was that one around at the same time as a Special K diet? Did those go together? Were I those think friends? so. Yeah, yeah. I've, I think... And like Slim Fast, all of these things yeah. that happened in the 90s as I was a very impressionable teen didn't seem abnormal to me. I was just like, oh yeah, you eat these types of foods to stay thin, which is terrible that we <laughs> that we went through that. So I was like, there's kind of those obvious ones where it's like, yeah, it says diet. And to me, the modern version of that is like products that say keto or low carb or no carb. It's like, oh gosh. Or So I don't know, with those cookies, I thought it was interesting because Beth saw them as like, well, I thought these were just kind of like a cleaner ingredient food because they're grain-free and they don't have added cane sugar. It's all sugar from dates. But then you kind of came to your own realization about that as well. Do you want to share that? Who, me? Yeah, because you were like – you were thinking you're like, oh, it's like clean ingredients. And then you were like, but 
why do why do I care if it's like clean or not? You know, right? Like, well, because when I go for food, I try to be like, okay, in the level of processed food, what's the hierarchy, and what am I willing to to eat in terms of like the level of processed food? Like, I think that. I tend to avoid some of the more name brand products because they have more additives and more processing. And so I try to avoid those. And so I would go for a brand because I'm like, oh, I know that this is a processed food, but at least it's like a level up. My body can at least tolerate this probably a little bit better. And I only really do, I don't care about the grain free or any of that other stuff. Sometimes I do have to pick those for my daughter because she's has a limit to how much processed wheat she can tolerate on her body before she gets eczema. So, I mean, I would choose something like that for her to not feel like she has to really limit how much she can eat before she gets eczema. So I look at products in them like that, like in a processed food hierarchy of like, what do I want to eat and not versus, you know, in terms of like chemicals. But at the same time, you know, if you handed me an Oreo, I'd be like, heck yeah, I'd eat that. But I wouldn't probably buy like a whole container of them. Well, I kind of gave you the example, too, of like snack wells, right? It's like, oh, just because they're healthy cookies, which we thought in the 90s, oh, these are what was it? They were fat-free in the 90s. Fat-free cookies were like, oh, yes, we can eat as many fat-free cookies (laughs) as we desire. And so when I think of just this culture of like, I don't know. Labeling things labeling free of this. and Yeah. Or it's like alternatives or substitutions, which goes to the eat this, not that. It's like, okay, we're marketing cauliflower as rice. And I'm like, can we just call it something else? Like, it is. I understand why that is a good choice for a lot of people. And especially if you enjoy it, that might be a really great choice. But for other people, it's like, if you don't enjoy cauliflower, I don't know. Make it be rice. I was actually about to say that, that I think like those cookies you were talking about, the first uh, cookies you were mentioning, if somebody really enjoys that and likes eating that, or if snack wells are someone's favorite cookie. Like I think sometimes it's really being honest and examining your motivations. Because if you really are in getting satisfaction out of it, that's one thing, as opposed to if you're not really enjoying it, you really would be wanting something else. But right. this other food, because you think that, oh, this is what I should be eating, then I think it becomes more diet food in that instance than when it's just like, I just love this and I think it tastes great. Right. Yeah. And that's where I am like, I when you were saying that, I immediately go to that new thing of all the cottage cheese ice cream videos that are out there, which I hadn't heard of until a couple of weeks ago. And now it's all I can see. <laughs> I'm like, what is happening? So yeah, it's like that. It's like somebody's turning cottage cheese into ice cream. But I'm just like, well, what if you just went and got a little bit of ice cream instead? You know, like to me, that seems so much more reasonable for a mindset than turning everything into, I need a quote unquote healthy replacement. I think a lot of times people don't even realize that- you know, maybe they're eating this cottage cheese ice cream, but really they're wanting real ice cream. Right. They don't notice later on when they're binging on something else because they didn't allow themselves to actually have what they wanted. I don't think we always make that connection. Mm -hmm. I certainly used to not make the connection that me eating the whole bag of chips later on was because I had denied myself something earlier in the day. Because, yeah, you were like restricting that, that urge. 
And Jessica, you had said that one of the responses that you got that all whole foods for this person was considered diet food. And that like blew my mind because, and also made me very sad because just that concept that anything like deemed whole food would be considered a diet food because of like how much we push weight status around whole foods and vegetables and fruits and whole grains. And it just is like, oh, that like that hurts as like a dietitian. That makes me sad for yeah. the perception out there around our basic food supply that we need. Yeah. It's like dietary PTSD, right? They dieted so much before that they associate chicken and vegetables as a diet food because we had to, we, the diet industry had to say, well, you can only have steamed chicken and steamed broccoli in order for this to be good for you, which was not the case. And so, yeah, I mean, when she said that I was shocked too, but I was like, oh, I see that. It makes sense. It goes back to what we were talking about with salads before. It's just this perception of, you know, oh gosh, if I'm eating whole foods then I must be trying to lose weight or something. So Mm -mm. yeah. So anyway, if you're listening, we'd love to hear what your definition is. And I just, I was fascinated because I do tell people, I'm like, what if we stopped doing that to ourselves? Like what if we avoided diet foods, but I never thought to really expand the definition of what that actually meant. I just was like, hey, if you're eating fat-free, low-calorie yogurt, why not try the regular one, you know? Yeah, just to see. I mean, I don't like yogurt, but I think if I were like, well, I know I have like a general range of like what my body can tolerate, I'd be like, well, for sure I'd rather have cheese than full-fat yogurt. So I would be like, let me find the balance between how much, you know, food I could take in. And like if I were thinking in that way, when we talk about like vegetables and combinations and stuff like that for snack, that is one of the first things that people will be like, well, these snacks are what I probably should be eating and blah, blah. And they'll mention like carrots and celery and like hummus or stuff like that. And I'm like, well, how do you view those foods? Do you like them because you like them or do you view them as like, a more healthy dieting snack. Because if you are viewing them as like a diet snack, then I'm going to have to ask that we find something else because that's not what we're going for here. We're going for finding some balance throughout the day to keep you energized. You don't feel tired at three o'clock, but I also, if carrots and hummus feels like diet food, then that's only going to last for about three, maybe five days. So that's how I kind of ask people about some of those food choices in terms of like, how do you view them as diet food or as like regular food? I guess. Yeah. We, you know, I always bring it back to the dose too. It's like if food is medicine, what is the dose of these mm-hmm. things? And if we have to increase the dose of your vegetables to maintain health, then what, what can that look like for you? And yeah, it doesn't always have to be salads and carrots. Okay, let's shift focus. Let's talk about what we came here to talk about. So Trina, I came to the Facebook group where all the coaches are, and I was looking for someone to discuss this topic with us, and you stepped up. So thank you so much. And you had also suggested this book by Jessica Wilson. It's called It's Always Been Ours. And this book presents how the dominant narrative about Black women's bodies is shaped by white supremacy. And it's a really great book. It's very eye-opening. I would suggest that anyone listen to it. So thank you so much for that recommendation. 
So if you're like, oh, what does racism have to do with diet culture? I kind of wanted to warm up this conversation and share some of these pillars of why by talking about some of these kind of top three things, and then we'll take it from there. How does that sound? Sounds good. Okay. So the number one that I had written down was just this Eurocentric beauty standards. It's like, who decided that we were all supposed to be thin and when and how? Yeah. So so you're right. The book that you referenced is a great book. It's always been ours. And then there was another book that actually came out before that called Searing the Black Body by Dr. Sabrina Strings. And so you will hear that book referenced a lot in um, these discussions. And so she started out the book kind of by talking about many years ago, whenever you look at the paintings, for example, and some of the Renaissance period and classical painters, the way that they drew a woman's body and how she often was in a larger body or what we would consider to be a larger body today. And that was deemed beautiful. And then in the book, she talks about slavery and the slave trade and how as slavery was introduced, the uh, people who were kind of in charge of slavery started demonizing black bodies and saying negative things about them and the appearance. And so to separate white from black, they kind of changed the standard of what is beautiful. And so they said, okay, well, if these people look this way, then we're going to say beauty is the opposite. And so that's what she talks about in her book. And she is making the argument that that is where that standard of being very thin started from. And then there's also a part of her book where she brings in religion as well and talks about how there is this idea of you're more um, like religious, essentially, if you are able to restrict and not eat as much and, you know, just focus on God or something like that. And mm -hmm. so most of the book is about racism. And then there was also that interesting component as well about religion being brought into it to celebrate and put this idea forward that thin is beautiful and thin is the way we should all be. Mm. I just had to take a breath. Mm. <laughs> like, that's a lot. Yeah. Well, that's interesting because when I was – I had not read that first book that you mentioned, so I definitely need to add it to my list. And when I was looking into this too, it was talking about in the industrial revolution is also when the fashion industry really blew up. And that's kind of how they also decided that thin was better was, you know, somewhere around the 1920s with like the whole flapper situation. But it sounds like it really started a lot sooner than that as far as demonizing different shapes and colors of bodies. So – yeah, I don't know. I find it interesting and fascinating, especially as the ideals change over time. Mm -hmm. But as we know, it's like I feel like in the last 10 years, there was some, you know, a few steps forward. And then just very recently, a couple of steps back as there's more discussion about like, OK, well, we we gave curves a try, but now we're going to go back to being thin. And it's like, wait, what? <laughs> well, and it's really interesting because even whenever there's a brand or something that says, oh, look at our plus size model or our curvy model, they still usually have the same body type. They still usually have a flat stomach. So maybe they have more curves, wider hips, but they still have large breasts and a flat stomach. So there's still this ideal that the fashion industry is putting forward. 
Now, I did see a an ad from Victoria's Secret the other day who, because, you know, now they okay. are like, well, we celebrate everybody. And so they really did have real bodies in this ad. But I know that is a very recent change from Victoria's Secret. But are they airbrushed? What I notice is that most of them, it's obvious that it still is airbrushed. You're like, so that's what's also really frustrating to me is that they'll put a larger body person on there and you can still tell that it's been, you know, skin has been been smoothed. Right. And, you know, I didn't pay that much attention to that, but I wouldn't, I yeah. wouldn't be surprised because you're right. right. Uh, airbrushing is so prevalent. And then we grow up looking at these pictures and thinking we should look like that. And the people don't even look like that themselves. Yeah. Yeah. In the book with Jessica Wilson, she talks about be careful who you center in order to make yourself feel better about your own body. And she talks about, she gives Lizzo as an example. And I was like, shit, I've been called out, right? Because she talks about like, oh yeah, all the white women love Lizzo. Lizzo became this face of body positivity without, I don't know if that was her intention or not, you know? And then they're like, just be careful who you use to feel better about your own body. And I was like, dang, I was like, that is a really good point. And she used the word mammification. So I don't know if, you know, you want to speak to that, but it was just like looking at how we are looking to other bodies to be these examples. And maybe they were not meant to be the examples or maybe, I don't know, it just seems like we're kind of doing it wrong, I guess. Well, I remember in the book, I think she talked about Lizzo losing some weight. And then she said like, you know, all of these people turned against her because they were like, no, you are supposed to be our, our model, our hero. And she was basically like, can we just let Lizzo live? <laughs> let her be yeah. who she wants to be. And yeah. she, she never was intending to be the person to make you feel better about yourself. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's I see a lot of larger bodied women on Instagram that have a couple recently admitted to going on Ozempic and you know, the backlash that they got immediately from their own community being like, "No, no, no. Like you were the person that was supposed to make us feel better about our bodies and now you're abandoning us by going on this drug and now you're going to be thin and where how are we going to be left?" But that's not actual body positivity. And that's not helpful or nice or kind to be, you know, it's like, oh, we're not judging, we're not judging. And then if somebody wants to change, then we're judging. Mm -hmm. So. Right. Yeah. No, that's been a hard thing for me, you know, because coming out of eating disorder treatment, you very much were like, nobody should change anything. Like, like everybody needs to denounce dieting. Everyone needs to denounce losing weight. We should all just stay exactly where we are. And then I think over time, I've had to kind of realize that you know, people get to be who they want to be. People get to do what they want to do with mm -hmm. their bodies and with their lives. And so you know, my job is not to try to shame people into thinking the way I think or make everyone believe how I believe. And so if somebody wants to do Ozempic, then, you know, I have to re remember that's their right to do what they want to do with their body. I can still keep speaking my message and the people who need to hear what I have to say will gravitate towards me, but it's not my job to try to change everybody else. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to use this as a time to go into this, like it's actually number three, but we'll come back to number two in a second, which is how diet culture tends to oversimplify the relationship between body size and health. Mm-hmm. Because medically speaking, the first thing that came to mind was like the BMI charts, like who made the BMI <laughs> charts? What was the population that they pulled the BMI numbers from? And you know, how does this affect the care of different people in different shapes and sizes? And so when you talk about like, yeah, maybe we should just never change our bodies. Like I see that definitely from that eating disorder world, but also, I don't know, as a doctor, as a medical doctor, how do you discuss that with patients and and what is your perspective on all that? Right. So one thing that I learned in treatment that I actually find to be very helpful, and I do talk to patients about it, is the idea that health is not just a weight. And so Mm -hmm. I think that often we think health is just our weight or health is our BMI. And so I try to teach them, you know, health is so much more than that. Um, Health can be sleeping, exercise, meditating, spending time with friends, you know, pursuing Mm -hmm. things that you like to do. And so I was actually just coaching a client on this recently, and she was saying she wanted to lose weight. And I said, you know, regardless of if you lose weight or not, that's not happening today, but there are other health promoting behaviors that you can start doing right now other things that will help your blood pressure. So we talked about exercise. I said, exercise can help your blood pressure. And that's something you can do right now. And you don't have to change your body. You don't have to go on any kind of restriction and you can still achieve some of those benefits. So that's more of the discussion Uh that I've started using with patients because I feel like it's very easy for me as a doctor to just say, oh, you need to lose weight and then just walk out. And then I think the patient's probably like, Either I've already tried and failed multiple times or they're like, okay, well, how am I supposed to do that? (laughs) So I no longer really feel like that advice is helpful for anymore, at least in the setting that I practice in. Because in my setting, I literally was just saying, oh, well, you can lose weight. And then that was it. Well, yeah. that's what I want to ask. That was I didn't know if we would have time to kind of touch on it. We don't have to spend a lot of time on it. But you have a private coaching practice. And then you also are still a practicing doctor in a practice. But so I go hospital. So you I work in a hospital. Yeah. So what is that like? Because you don't have a lot of time to spend with patients in a hospital. So what does that conversation look like in a hospital setting for you? Right. And, and it is different. I, I do not practice primary care. So I'm not the doctor that you would go see in the office. Uh-huh. I'm the doctor that you're seeing if you're hospitalized because right. you have pneumonia or you've had a heart mm-hmm. attack or something like that. And so we would start those conversations. We do have dietitians that work in our hospital who often go into a lot more depth. Mm-hmm. But what I think I've started doing, and again, this is all since I went through treatment, is not shaming people or blaming or making them feel like this is their fault or that if they would just lose weight, all their problems would be solved. Yeah. And acting as if this is losing weight is just some easy thing because really most people have lost weight and then they probably gained it back and maybe Mm -hmm. have lost it and gained it back. There's so many people who've tried diets, they're not sustainable. And so that... I've kind of gotten away from that more Mm -hmm. so and just try to talk to people about, you know, health promoting habits. Yeah. One thing I remember from my internship at, in a really small hospital, it was a term that was used that it didn't sit right then. It still doesn't sit right now is 
individuals, they called them frequent flyers. Mm -hmm. And so people that came in frequently for Mm -hmm. their health conditions, usually it was heart related Mm -hmm. conditions. And so it's like, oh, well, so-and-so is here again. And then they would term them as frequent flyers. And I was like, Okay. So we could, you know, view them a little bit differently. So I didn't really at the time know how to like wrap my head around, around that. I just knew that that wasn't a good way to view somebody. Cause it's almost like they had given up on this person mm-hmm. and knew that whatever advice that was given to them, either from the doctor or from the dietitian's office, it was just kind of like, well, they're probably going to be back anyway. Right. Well, I think that kind of ties into the theme of your podcast because there's a lot of other factors right, that go into whether someone comes back. There are health disparities for sure. Mm-hmm. People have different socioeconomic statuses, health literacy, access to food. And you're right. It's very easy for the medical community to say, oh, they just don't care. They didn't do what we said. They're eating food with too much salt. And in the book that you had um, referenced, she talks about that, where in communities of color, there's less grocery stores, for example, or there might be more of the dollar stores or convenience Mm -hmm. stores, but you can't really get the fresh vegetables. And maybe the person doesn't have a car and they can't get to the clinic appointment or they don't have money to pay for their medicines. And Mm -hmm. so- Certainly, this does affect communities of color more and people in lower socioeconomic groups. And we often just say, well, this is what health looks like. And if you are not doing this, then you're not even trying. (laughs) You know, we put the blame on the person without Mm -hmm. taking time to really think about all of the barriers that that person has to trying to achieve health. So it's very easy as a physician for me to say, well, you need to eat this many fruits and vegetables and exercise this amount of time and just go out for a walk. What if this person lives somewhere where people are getting shot all the time when they go out for walks? Right. And so I think it is important to remember that, that not everybody has the same playing field. Right. Because even in some of the areas where there are grocery stores, what is stocked in the grocery stores can look very different. So I did my master's in Georgia and our grocery stores in Athens looked very different than inner city Atlanta and the populations we were working with and like seeing what is available at the grocery stores looked very different than grocery stores looked like when I was growing up and the ones that we had in our college town. So it is very different. And then a lot of medical professionals do not go and take the time to look to see what are the access points and what are in the grocery stores. Because yes, there were vegetables in those grocery stores, but they didn't look very fresh. So they wouldn't be appealing to really anyone to purchase them. They'd be like, why would I get something that looks half rotten? You know, why would I spend my money on that? So it's just something that I feel like, you know, people need to see more of. Well, even in Austin, if you go to a different HEB, oh, it's yeah, they're very different. different. You know, sometimes it's like, oh, if you go like, the, I haven't been to the brand new HEB off Lake Austin. I know Me that either. it's supposedly amazing. But you know, if you compare that to where I used to live was First Street and William Cannon, and there was an HEB that has since closed. And that HEB was very old. Like the produce was, it, this produce selection was very small versus like the new one. And I don't know. So yeah, it's just, it is fascinating to see how 
the access, depending on where you are and how much money you have, makes a big difference. So first of all, I just want to say I hope that you have access to your fellow physicians and that you can give them education on everything that you know because you're just a gem of a physician and we need more doctors and we need surgeons and we need just everybody in the medical community to understand that the BMI chart is not the end-all be-all of health. And it's just, it's very frustrating. I have clients that are very frustrated. They are being withheld care because of BMI and that's not cool. Yeah, no, it's definitely a struggle. Earlier this year, I partnered with a couple of other physicians and we put on a virtual conference called Disrupting Weight Bias in Medicine. Mm. Oh, I was, saw that and I was very sad. I missed it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, bummer. That would have been such. A, I was really sad to miss. Yeah, it, it was. So if you fun. do it again, I want to. I want to do it. Yes, we, we hope to do it again. And it was a lot of fun just because we realize that medicine is filled with so much weight bias. I mean, the whole society is filled with weight bias. So even if you're not a physician, you're going to grow up with it. Mm-hmm. But medical training as well is filled with weight bias, and you know they just say like when they talk about risk factors and they'll say obesity. And so then you're just like, oh, this person is doing this to themselves. And they might, well, I don't ever remember in medical training them saying, well, maybe a patient who has a diagnosis of obesity doesn't get the health care because they're discriminated against in the office or the Mm -hmm. office doesn't have chairs that they can sit in. And so Mm -hmm. they don't even come to the office or people don't take their story seriously and they Mm -hmm. just attribute it to their weight. And so then their diagnosis is delayed or the equipment can't even diagnose them accurately. Like they, maybe the table does is not made to support their weight. And Mm -hmm. so that was never mentioned in medical training. We were just told, Oh, it's because they're obese. And so then you, and then the diet industry of course is saying, well, if you're obese, we have the solution. (laughs) And so you kind of start thinking, well, everybody must be choosing to be this way. And Mm -hmm. so I think that bias does get passed through in medicine. And people are just like, well, it's their choice. They're choosing. They're not watching what they eat. They're not exercising. And probably the biggest determinant (laughs) might be your genetics, which isn't Mm -hmm. something that what you're eating necessarily is going to change. But we never really talked about that either, right? Like we never talked about the genetic component. It was kind of implied in my medical training that this is those patients' fault. If if they choose not to change it, then, oh, well, that's their choice. And so I think Mm -hmm. that does contribute to the bias and discrimination in medicine. Yeah, I have clients that we have to really discuss the pros and cons of going to their annual physical because they don't want to get the lecture right about their weight and all the things. And so it's just mm-hmm. it's like, they're interesting conversations and legitimate concerns doing normal preventative care. And all they see is I still haven't lost 50 pounds and mm-hmm. that's all they want to talk about. Right. There are, there is a movement called health at every size and mm-hmm. there are, you know, physicians, dietitians, et cetera, who kind of designated as health at every size um, providers, but there aren't as many of them <laughs> as there are <laughs> of everyone else. So, you know, sometimes I tell people you could always write a letter to your doctor, hand it to them first visit, explaining why you don't really want to talk a lot about your weight. Maybe mm-hmm. have your dietitian, your therapist, somebody else write the letter for you. I know there are these little cards that you can get online that ask the doctor not to weigh you unless it's Mm. absolutely necessary. 
but it's still hard. I mean, it's still hard to really advocate for yourself in healthcare, especially if that is not at all your personality or you're not normally in healthcare. Like it's much easier for me to advocate for myself since that's what I do for my job, but it is harder, I think, for patients to advocate for themselves. Well, especially if they're believing the story that their body is wrong. You know, if they haven't even come into the place of like, well, I want to learn how to love and accept myself, but if I don't even know how to do that, then how can I advocate for myself? It's like I'm believing that I am wrong or that I am bad and I need to be fixed. Certainly, we have told people that story. And again, it's not just the medical community. We learn it from the time we're born, essentially, that there's a right body and a wrong body. Yeah. Okay. Well, I do want to hear your story, but before I, we just have one more point as far as explaining some of the narrative about racism and wellness culture in general. And one that I find fascinating because I follow a few people on Instagram is how the cultural appropriation of food, especially like food culture and food ingredients comes into play because that's like new information to me just within the last year or two of kind of seeing that and understanding it. Because if you think about food in the United States, it's all appropriated from somebody. Like I can't think of a single food that was like invented in the United States, maybe corn. I don't know. So it's like, okay, but what does that mean? And so I've been thinking, and I want I want you to give me your explanation, but kind of the way I've been thinking about lately is like taking whatever, it's not just like, oh, I, I enjoy the food of this culture. It's like, oh, we're going to look at this food and then we're going to put that marketing on it and say, this food is now a health food and this food is promoted for weight loss. And it's just really twisting it up into something that it's not. And one video I recently saw was a woman who was a an influencer. I think she was like a raw foodist or something. And she's uh, very, very thin and she's making like collard green wraps, you know? And and then it was a, um, what is it called when you do them side by side? And I think it was, um, Ooh, I don't remember the name. Yeah. The duo, the duo. Yeah. You know, and then there's the, the black dietitian is like, Oh my God, like, what are we doing to collard greens? Like we cannot allow this kind of cultural appropriation where we're taking foods that were obviously elevated via this culture and now we're turning it into what I would call diet food. So what do you think of when you think yeah. of cultural Well, I would say the, the one thing I have kind of seen some talk about and is saying certain foods, maybe that certain cultures eat are good and then other food that other cultures eat are bad. So I remember, I can't remember if it was in it's all, the book, It's Always Been Ours, but I re- was reading somewhere about <laughs> a person who was Asian and in their culture, they ate a lot of white rice, but then the dietitian said, oh, that's bad. You shouldn't eat that. You should be eating brown rice without taking in to effect that this was this person's culture, how they'd grown up. This was very important to them. And so I think the same thing, like when you talk about greens, there is a certain way that I grew up eating greens as a black person. And If someone were to just say, oh, that's bad, that's wrong, you can't have that, you have to have, I don't know, this spinach instead. Yes, I like spinach, but if they're like demonizing the food that you're used to eating, I I think that's a problem. And so that's maybe where some racism might come in, where we say, oh, foods of other ethnicities are bad, (laughs) but the traditional American food that is good. Yeah, which is crazy because the American food is the worst food of anybody's food. <laughs> We're like, what is? Took and everything and processed it down to all be bland and 
high fat, high yeah. carb, high salt. And just figured out yeah. a way to get people to like it a lot. And not the worst. There are no good or bad foods, you know. I but know. we but we have we've had clients who've moved to Austin from other countries and they're like, gosh, just in the you know, since I've been here, my stomach has not felt well, you know, and mm-hmm. it's like because they've basically had to abandon their native foods that were mostly whole foods, well prepared, and you know, and now they're in this new place, which less we could talk about gut bacteria and the transition and you know, drinking water and all of that. But it's like, oh no, they've just adapted to ordering a pizza via DoorDash or whatever. And they're just like, oh, this doesn't feel good in my body. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But yeah, I think that too. There was, what is it? The Latina nutritionist on Instagram talks a lot about like rice and beans should not be demonized. Like there's nothing wrong with rice and beans. Leave our rice and beans alone. And I think that definitely goes into like the diet culture of like carbs are bad and, you know, Mm -hmm. we just need to eradicate carbs altogether. And there's definitely some damage going on with that whole conversation. Yeah, it's, it just is. It should be the same conversation with everyone. Is like, well, how much can your body handle of that certain nutrient of source? So, if can your body handle? Yes, you can still eat white rice, but maybe we need to adapt how much of the white rice to the other aspects that are part of the meal. And so on and so forth. So it's just like it should always be the same that we talk about with everyone. It's like, what do you like to eat? What is normal for your family? And how can we manage that dose that your body can tolerate so you still get to have all of those things in your life? And then bridge the gap with, you know, some other things like, can we add more of this and to fill the gaps of like where more rice would come in? Yeah. I just think of the complexities too of like, okay, we're talking about cultural appropriation of food and then we're blending in with the food deserts and there's just so many layers to all of this that I can see why it's a challenge for us to break through all of these. But having, again, physicians and dietitians and people that are aware of this, I think is the first step. I don't know if there's anything else you would add as far as how can we shift away from contributing to these kinds of things. Right. No, I definitely think bringing awareness is important. And one reason that the other two physicians and I partner together is we said, well, if physicians are going to listen to someone, it will be another physician. They'll listen to other physicians more than other people. And so we wanted to reach that audience primarily. And so, yeah, yeah, I think within our own circles of influence, having these conversations Yeah. You touched on something that I find very interesting, which is people do trust their physicians, even when their physicians are not great ones and are mean to them. So I think it's important, again, to find the physicians that are willing to listen and educate. So again, thank you for doing what you do. Okay. So I do want to hear your personal story because I was listening to the book and Jessica Wilson talks about being a dietitian and going through this predominantly white educational system. And even in her work, how there were you know many biases and, and things that were working against her and how challenging that was. So did you feel like, what was your experience in medical school and going through all of your training? Did you come up against any of those injustices? Let's see. There were definitely not very many people who looked like me in medical training. It had pretty much been that way my whole life. So it just kind of seemed par for the course. I do think it is important though, like I very much believe in diversity and I think it's important because the patients that we take care of are diverse. And so I think it is important for us to have diverse 
admissions processes to college so that we can be around and interact with people that aren't exactly like us and to graduate school, medical school, et cetera. But I think in medicine, because the doctor has so much power, mm-hmm. if you're going into this interaction with biases about that person, racial biases or other biases, it can really affect their care. And so I think from that standpoint, it is important for physicians to really deliberately take time to learn cultures of other people. And I think that that's really important. Yeah, absolutely. My dad's actually a retired medical doctor and he did his training with Houston, UT Houston, but then he did his uh, residency in New Orleans. And so he experienced a very different population than what he was trained with. And so I don't know, I'll have to ask him about his experience with that. But just what you said, we're like the the population that we're serving is so diverse, but yet the medical industry is not diverse at all. Right. So why did you become a doctor? Why did you decide to do that? It's what I always wanted to do um, since I was seven. (laughs) So I just, I don't know that I liked the idea of helping people, but helping them in this particular way with their health. And then I work in the hospital because I really enjoy the complexity of patients in the hospital. And I really like helping people at that stage. Like it's a very scary stage for the patient. And I really like coming in at that time and being able to help. I am curious if you are comfortable or not kind of talking a little bit about your eating disorder history because you do reference it. And so I'm just kind of curious about that because it is such an under discussed topic in people of color Mm -hmm. that it's people tend to think that eating disorders primarily happen in white women and everybody else is just like, (laughs) it's not really a thing, but it is actually very very pervasive in all cultures. So I'm just kind of curious if you'd be willing to discuss that. Yeah, no, I think that's an important point you brought up. There is no one way that eating disorders look. So anyone can have an eating disorder. And I had an eating disorder from the time I was in high school. And a couple of times along the way, I did seek some treatment. So thankfully, Whenever it was first brought to my family doctor's attention, she did get me to the resources I needed. But at that time, insurance really maybe didn't cover much eating disorder Mm -hmm. treatment. And I know that was how it was sort of explained to me whenever I went to my most recent journey, which I'll talk about in a minute. And I was kind of telling them during the intake, I said, you know, I've tried this before. I've tried treatment and it didn't work. And They would say, well, what was the treatment like? And I said, well, six outpatient sessions. That was all insurance would pay for. And then I remember them saying, you know, eating disorder treatment has come a long way and six sessions just isn't enough and it's Mm -hmm. not your fault, you know, et cetera. And so I really realized kind of when the pandemic happened, that's when things really got out of control. And I finally realized, hey, I've got to go back and try to get help. And so this time it was a six-week intensive program every every day. I was there working on this. (laughs) And so Mm -hmm. it completely changed my life, like changed the way that I think about food, that I relate to food. There were no other people who looked like me Mm -hmm. in the treatment group or even among the psychiatrists, dietitians, Mm -hmm. or the lead therapists. 
that was definitely something I noticed, right? And the more I've, I've researched it and read about it now, eating disorders are underdiagnosed in African-Americans. And that's what I saw, that people weren't there and that mostly it was white, thin women. Because I think that, like you said, people might see a white, thin woman and think, oh, I wonder if they could have an eating disorder. But if it's anybody else, then they don't think it. It's not mm-hmm. maybe one of the first thoughts that come to mind. And so I certainly noticed that while I was at treatment. Mm-hmm. But the, yeah, the treatment was an amazing experience. And then it's kind of what got me interested in talking about binge eating and talking about these topics is because I feel like so many people struggle with their relationship with food, even if they don't officially have an eating disorder. I just think it's very pervasive that people are struggling with their relationship with food. And so I just kind of wanted to get that knowledge out there. I'm glad to hear there's some good programs out there because it still sounds like there's some some old programming that's going on in some of the treatment centers. So I'm glad it was a very positive experience for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it definitely was a positive experience for me. I will say, though, that I did continue to get life coaching even while I was in recovery. Yeah. And my thought on that was I still have a life outside of recovery. <laughs> and yeah. this coach is still helpful in all the other issues that come up, some of which I used to deal with with food. And mm-hmm. so I still really enjoyed having that coach because I could still talk to the coach about everything else. And then the eating disorder team focused on the eating disorder. But it's not like I would have gone to my eating disorder treatment team and said, oh, this person said this, and now I'm upset, and it's affecting me, whereas my coach would really help me delve into that more. And so I really liked having the combination of the two, the treatment team specifically focused on the eating disorder, and my coach helping with my mindset for everything I love that. that Do you ever have time to coach patients? Like, is that allowed? Or are you ever just like, let me give you a quick mindset freebie? (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't officially coach. But in coaching, we learn a lot of open-ended questions. Uh And so I do definitely ask people, you know, why do you think that? And how is that helping you? And, you know, things like that. (laughs) Yeah. I certainly ask some of those questions or, um, you know, telling people, talking about the importance of mindset. And so, yes, I I do say that sometimes to patients. Well, because I feel like if we just talk about, oh, like shifting your mindset is everything, like what does that mean to people who Mm -hmm. haven't experienced coaching? It just kind of seems a little intangible and, you know, like, is this really going to be helpful for me? But yes, when all it takes is one powerful question for somebody to be like, oh, I've never thought about that before. Like nobody's ever asked me that before. And to me, just even one question can change the trajectory of your whole journey. And there have been times where I tell patients, think about the mindset you have while you're here in the hospital. If all day long you're sitting here telling yourself, I'm going to die, I'm not going to get better, this is awful. Versus if you're like, you know what, I'm going to do whatever I can. Even though I can't walk, I'm going to sit here in bed and do leg raises or something like that. You know, I'm like, that mindset is going to serve you much better than the one sitting here all day telling yourself you're going to die. Maybe the person is going to, and what will happen is going to happen. But I'm like, it certainly isn't serving you to just tell yourself this all day long. And so sometimes I will talk about that with patients. 
And I tell them I, I believe the mind is very powerful and that it, it does play a role in healing. And so I talk to them about that. It absolutely does. Kind of going back to I have a, a question about coaching and in minority populations, people of color, it also seems like people think that rich white people are the ones that like to seek out coaching and things like that. So how do you work through some of those concepts of people being like, well, coaching is not for me. That's what wealthy white people do. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of curious about that because that's kind of what it sometimes it looks like. I mean, I kind of feel like it's the same answer with everything, right? Like increasing the representation so that other mm -hmm. people see people who look like them, right? So increasing the representation of Black coaches, mm -hmm. promoting Black coaches more, or not just Black, any other minority group. Yeah. Because I do think that people want to see that there are people who look like them. And depending on what the issue is that they want coaching on, maybe they care, maybe they don't. Mm -hmm. But if they do think it's relevant, then it's nice to have options and see that there are options, right? And some of the coaches in the industry who have a larger following, and just like you all are doing, like highlighting me to your audience, people taking that responsibility to highlight others who maybe aren't as well known so that people can see, like you said, every we're not all the same. Right. Yeah. We all have our own perspective based on our own life experiences and even with our own practice, Jessica really resonates with some people first and I don't have any connection with them whatsoever and vice versa. So it's just all like who we connect with and, and who we want right. to see. Well, I saw you recently had Latifat on your podcast and we had her like, was that last year, a full mm -hmm. year ago? And it sounds like a lot has happened for her since then. I haven't kept up to date. I think she quit practicing as a physician. Uh, she's taking a hiatus. A yeah, sabbatical. Yeah. Um, yeah. But she also spoke a lot about representation. Were you at the Mastermind in Austin I last did year? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we were in the room and Latifat was the one that she admitted that she did not apply for her 100K award. Yes. yes I was there at, when she said that. Yeah. And it was just, I was just like, wait, what? But it was just, you know, all the other women in the room were like, no, we needed you. We needed you to be a part of that representation, even though, you know, she realized she was like, I realized this award wasn't for me necessarily. Right. It was for you know, the people looking up to right. try to find other people that look like me. And I was like, oh, right. that's so good. Because <laughs> so. a lot of times when you see people who look like you or who you identify with doing things, then you believe more that it's possible. So some of it's seeing more coaches of color so that other people will say, hey, maybe I can become a coach too. And then also mm -hmm. for the population we're trying to serve so that there's somebody who everybody can identify with and feel comfortable going to. Yeah, absolutely. Wonderful. Well, I don't have any other questions. Do you, Jessica? No, I think we can wrap it up. Unless, Trina, do you have anything else that you want to share? I just appreciate you all taking the time to bring awareness to these issues. I, I definitely feel that when I talk about these issues, I'm still in the minority and I'm sure you probably feel that way as well. Like so many people are talking about the next diet or the losing weight or changing their body. When you're talking about these other topics, 
people are kind of looking at you strange. <laughs> They're like, why are you talking well, about that? <laughs> I don't so, know about you, but it's there's like a struggle. We always feel kind of in this gray area because we're like, yeah, gray. if you want to lose weight, which like most people, when we intake people on our website, mm-hmm. it's like, what can we help you with, right? The first thing, like the majority of people are still seeking weight loss. And mm-hmm. so for like from a marketing perspective, sometimes I get a little like, I don't want to bait and switch people, right. you know, but it's like I want them to understand like, okay, if you're seeking weight loss, maybe what else are you actually seeking? And mm-hmm. yes, we can change your body, but also can we do it in a way from a whole health perspective that's not so diet culture Like, mm-hmm. you know, I was just trying to explain to a client like, what if it's not about the calories at all and it's about the types of foods that you're eating? Mm-hmm. You know, she was just like, wait, what? <laughs> You know, so yeah, we're in the minority and that we're trying to achieve something from a different perspective, but we're still trying to help the same general population. And I feel like that can be challenging. Right. One of the things that I'm really big on is intuitive eating. I became a certified intuitive eating counselor just because I really like the concepts so Mm -hmm. much. And one of the first principles of intuitive eating is this is not a diet. And so I have people who'll say, this approach sounds fascinating. It sounds like what I need. I'm so tired of counting and restricting. But then they're like, but I do still want to lose weight. And so it's hard, you know, I'm like, you might, but that isn't the focus of this. The focus of this is you've already tried that multiple times. Mm -hmm. This is to get you some freedom around food and free up the mental space (laughs) and Mm -hmm. just improve your relationship. Yeah, that is definitely... My goal is like to free up all that mental space around food and all of the things. I mean, we have to think about it because that's what keeps us alive. But you know, it's like all of the chitter chatter that is swirling around just picking a meal and to eat or not to eat and what to eat and not to eat and all of that just has, has got to go to go. You had mentioned our intake form. And one thing that strikes me is that people will list weight loss as number one, but then their health and then helping with their health conditions that are definitely causing a lot of problems Mm -hmm. are listed as like maybe number two, three, or five (laughs) in the terms of, you know, what they want to fix. And it just is like, we have to address those long before we can address the weight. Getting more positive outcomes and how you feel in this condition that you have is priority over weight loss. That is always the hard sell is getting them to want to think about those versus the nutritional aspects of of health conditions, like autoimmune diseases versus like, I want to lose weight. But that's the diet culture, right? They're taught like, okay, weight is my problem. So I must solve it. When it's like, well, weight isn't really your problem. It might be a symptom of what's going on or it might not be, but we should definitely focus on, yeah, what is your relationship with food? What are your habits? Like, how are you showing up for yourself in a way that feels good to you for all the reasons, not just the number on the scale? Mm -hmm. Well, Trina, can you tell us where can we find you? Is your podcast everywhere? Yes. So you can go to my website, which is foodfreedommd.com. And then the podcast that you referenced is Diet Culture is BS. Awesome. And you're on Spotify and Apple and all the podcasting places. Okay. (laughs) And you're also on Instagram at Trina Dora. And we'll put all these in the show notes. You can follow her and because I really enjoyed some of your posts that you posted. Well, the one I liked the most because I hear this a lot that I've scrolled through was seeing friends. Yeah. And all of the thoughts and how I wanted to hide and not go see them and 
yeah. the one like the thought gets offered, oh, maybe I should go on a crash diet before I see them. And then having to like work through all of those thoughts and emotions. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think so many people can relate to that. So thank you for being honest on that one. And definitely caught my eye because I hear that a lot. Right. I tell people it's, it wasn't easy. And it's not that I don't wish that I look different <laughs> or that I, if I were given the option, I would love to look like I used to look, but it's just, I know what it took to look like that. And I no longer yes. want to do those things to my body. Yeah. I was just sharing that. I was like, you know, I was thinking about a time where I, I would run six miles a day in college and I was probably my most fit, you know, but I was also abusing Adderall and not eating well. <laughs> and it's right. like, it's like, oh, well, I may have looked a certain way, but my overall physical and mental health was not, right. exactly. not so great, you know? So it's like, we have to look at the whole picture of how we're treating ourselves, not just yeah. the way that we look. Like we forget to think about like what it took <laughs> to get in the, in the downside of that to look like that. Well, thank you so much. I'm, I'm glad we're local. So maybe we'll have to have a coach gathering soon. Yes. Um, and I can meet you in real life. We'll do yes. a real life meeting. I sure hope we gave you something new to think about today and helped you take one more step on your path to freeing yourself from diet culture. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and follow us on Instagram at path underscore nutrition. We'd love to see you inside our interactive online course called Foundations. So go to pathnutrition.com backslash foundations to learn more and sign up today. Bye, everyone. Bye.